This is FYI, a series of podcasts featuring the biggest challenges in marketing and advertising telling their stories. These are honest and open conversations and will break down the barriers as to the who, the why, the what and the how of best-in-class marketeers from a variety of different sectors. Each week we'll be profiling a different person, learning about their journey and having a bit of fun along the way. This week's podcast guest is Hugo Schechter, founder and managing director at the Player Care Group, the UK's first consultancy group focused on player care, team operations and player well-being within sporting environments across the world. Hugo started his journey in sport coaching football in the US before one day seeing an opportunity in team operations and player care. He became team operations manager at Indy 11 in the USL before being headhunted by Southampton Football Club, becoming the club's first ever team liaison officer. He then moved on to West Ham before at the beginning of 2021 starting his own business, offering these services as a consultancy to sporting organisations worldwide. Hugo gives us a fascinating insight into the importance of player care in modern day football and working directly with Premier League managers and their teams to ensure everything that happens off the pitch runs smoothly. My name is Chris Gunn, co-founder and managing director of Love Gunn, and this is FYI with Hugo Schechter. Hi Hugo, how's it going? I'm good, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you very well. Thanks a lot for uh, for coming on. So um, with each of these, we like to start with some quick-fire questions. So are you good to go? Yeah, no problem. Okay, so uh, red or blue? Uh, blue. <laughs> uh, the UK or the US? Because I know you, uh, you've lived in both places. Both my nationalities. <laughs> UK, UK. UK, okay, nice, good. Um, would you rather have jelly legs or sausages for fingers? Ooh, jelly legs. I pretty much do anyway if I go for a walk or a run. So. <laughs> um, I, w- I was going to ask you Facebook or Instagram, but you just told me you don't have Facebook. So I'm going to go Twitter or Instagram. Twitter's more useful. Instagram's more interesting. Okay, nice. That's a, that's, a good, that's a good overview. Would you rather that a gaggle of geese were constantly following you or you always have to wear a three-foot-tall top hat? I think the geese. Yeah. It'd be quite annoying though, right? You know, like it would be a talking point at least. I think the hat, I'm already six, over six foot anyway, so uh, <laughs> on planes and, and going through doors and stuff wouldn't be great. So yeah. Okay, nice. That, those are the random ones out of the way. Um, yes. can, can, can you recommend uh, a decent podcast that you've either listened to or uh, in the past or now or whenever? You know, I'm not a huge podcaster, to be honest, even though I'm currently recording a podcast. <laughs> um, I really enjoy the interview I've listened to, da- uh, Done Deal by Daniel G. Um, he's a really good sports lawyer and has some really good uh, insights. So, yeah, uh, that'd be my, my pick. Nice. Um, what would be your last meal? Oof, um, steak and peppercorn sauce with dolphin white potatoes. Nice. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Um, and then finally, last good book you read mm. I was actually recommended a novel which is not again something I would normally read but uh, um, I'm currently reading uh, Delia Owen's When the Corda- Where the Crawdads Sing and it's a novel about Southern America in the 1970s so interesting something very different and 
quite enjoyed that. So, yeah. Nice. Sounds good. Noted it down. Um, those will be a quick fire, relatively unscathed there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, again, thanks for coming on. I think to to give context, I uh, or I say I know Hugo. Probably that's a, that's a strong word. We yeah. did we did our coaching level one badge together about 13 years ago. So I've kept kept tabs ever since. You've done some really interesting stuff um, in sport and, um, you know, in, in player player care, as it were. Um, and I thought it would be great to showcase your story. And now kind of in more recent times, you've started your own thing. So interested to hear all along the way. So where to start? We could start in many places. Obviously, we've only got half an hour. I'm sure we could talk for much longer than that. But I suppose first up, what is player care and what is kind of the basis of your role for the last however many years? Yeah, so player care is a department inside a football club or a sporting organisation that looks after the athletes. Um, it's usually classed as everything that's not football or medical or the sport and medical. So um, we're looking at, you know, when a player signs, relocating them into the, into the area, uh, looking after their families, um, helping the clubs engage, you know, with sponsors. So player appearances, that kind of stuff, the guy, stuff the guys normally hate. Um, but, you know, it can be down to, you know, how do the families interact on a match day, um, you know, team travel as well, going to games, you know, do you fly, do you drive, do you boat, plane, whatever, um, and team scheduling, team organisation, internal communications, uh, COVID rules now, uh, testing, all that kind of stuff. So it's quite a, a, an all-round approach. It's kind of looking at everything that's not on the pitch or, or sort of medical, but um, it's really expanded in the, the eight years since I've been doing it. It's kind of gone from just getting things done, which is kind of the way it was before. And what I'm trying to push is a, is a you know, a, a, a scientific approach, which is, is plan, strategy. Let's let's look at why we're doing things. Let's do things properly rather than just finding them a house that they're going to end up not liking, move three times. Mm. Let's try and do some research, find what exactly they do want um, and have a process around that to try and look after them and ultimately help clubs keep the value or, you know, not lose money on failed signings is the ultimate goal um, <laughs> while also looking after these guys as human beings. Yeah, sounds interesting. I, I think, you know, from a football fan's perspective, I'm sure you get this a lot when you're having conversations with people. It's, it's fascinating to think about a player's life and how you're basically doing, you know, you're, you're managing and looking after every aspect of their life that a football fan maybe wants to know about in this day and age through social and, you know, what they're up to. Um, so would you say a lot of that role is like firefighting? I can imagine different things happen every day. You must have dealt with a load of different scenarios. Yeah, I think... You know, your bread and butter is firefighting, but what you try and do is learn from those experiences and put in processes so it doesn't happen again or you've got a better plan. But, you know, I think every day, the great thing about the jobs, every day there's something, you know, different. I mean, one of our players quite publicly crashed his Lamborghini into a player's into a person's house dressed as a snowman on Christmas Day. I can't say I had my Christmas, uh, Christmas Lamborghini snowman policy written at that point. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's something different every time. But... Uh, yeah, you try and look at it properly, but I think, you know, a lot of these guys are human beings. The way I try and explain it is, you know, if, if you or I moved to Senegal age 19, would you know how to find a house there? Would you know how to get a car there? Would you know how the bins work, council tax, all that kind of stuff? So, mm. you know, a lot of times I sort of get criticised a little bit for saying, well, you know, they're rich guys, why can't they sort this out themselves? Well, A, why would the clubs take that risk? And B, you know, how how would they know these things necessarily? And some players want to learn how to do things. Most of them just want it done and that's fine. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of service we provide. 
Yeah, interesting. So I suppose starting at the beginning, how how did you get into something like this and to player care? Where where did it all begin? What was the what what kind of appealed when delving into this area? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I always loved football manager as a kid, and that's kind of why I did the coaching course that we did together. <laughs> do that, and I coached for about five or six years after that, including in America, um, you, you know, university men, high school girls, and I really thought that was what I was going to do. And I spoke to a couple of people, and they're like coaching's all right but if you're you've never been a top player then you're likely going to be bouncing around small clubs or small jobs you know not a, not a lot of money there's not really a lot of progression possible and you're not really going to get a great life out of that mm. so you know they should probably push yourself more to sort of the administration side which actually I did and um, kind of the university team was a bit of a experiment for me where I was in complete control of it and so I could put in some of these processes in place to get a basic experiment with it and, and we often won a lot of games just by being really organised, you know, getting there really early, having a meal, having the uniforms, having the proper practices. And, you know, anyone who's played uni sports know most of it's a bit of a piss up. Um, <laughs> and so by not doing that, by not drinking the night before a game, by being organised, by having all these things, we would smash people because, not because we were better players necessarily or, better, or I was a better coach, it was just the off-the-field stuff really helped. Mm. So then I moved, my first job out of uni was at a small startup club in North America in the second division. And, you know, that was an experience of just trying to do things as cheaply as possible. But, you know, starting from scratch. And then Southampton gave me a call a year later and where I'd been as an intern and said, would I like to come back full-time and try this role? You know, it was a new role for Southampton. And they kind of thought of me, which is nice. Um, and, yeah, I started it. And then I didn't really know what I was doing, but kind of fell into it a little bit. But... Um, I guess, you know, my career, my football career really started, you know, the, the day we met in, in 2008. Not not necessarily because of you, but uh, on that day. And, <laughs> I like to think it is. <laughs> I'm an inspiration. Uh, and, you know, that's where I really count my career starting rather than sort of when I left uni. But, uh, yeah, I, I guess it's kind of been a, a journey that I didn't really plan. I don't, never really wanted to do this, but I've kind of fallen into it and, and, and rode the, the wave at the right time where the industry's growing, the, the sort of thought around player care is growing. I've kind of been on top of that and and rode it as I've gone along, which has been obviously quite fortunate. Yeah, because when you read about it and, you know, again, following your journey and what you've been doing and, you know, player care is just like such an obvious essential for football clubs, especially with yeah. social media um, and just, you know, even the the, mod, the the press for the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, players need it. And as you say, like the cultural um, challenges that clubs face bringing in players and obviously accommodating a player and making them feel comfortable is the utmost urgency for a club because you want a player to be happy there's so much you know press around when Di Maria went to Man United and he hated Manchester and Mourinho living in a hotel that kind of thing that's never conducive for a good relationship is it no no absolutely not but you know even just financially and I think that's the way that a lot of clubs want to look at it is, is how financially can we, we make this work if you're paying someone 70 grand a week and it takes them two weeks to settle in that's 140,000 pounds you've spent you know where they haven't been at their best or haven't been at their most focused. And so the whole department costs 150 grand a year you know, yeah. most, in most, most regards. So, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of justify the costs, but you know, these guys are people too. And I think, you know, we all moved jobs and felt a little bit uncertain on that first day. And so we try and put in steps where, you know, they have like a list of all the people who work there with names and faces, just so when they walk in, you know, everyone knows who they are, but do they know who everyone else is? You know, do they know where to live? Do they know how to, go to the shops, all these different things, because yeah. what we're trying to do is, is lower that period of, of incoming you know, transition so that 
the club on the pitch and the manager and all the coaches get the best out of them as quickly as possible. Because if it takes someone three months to settle, you know, that could be millions of pounds that could have already been written off by that point. Mm. So I think it's really, really important we get this right straight away. And I, I don't understand why clubs don't do it. I mean, it's good for my business, which is doing that for clubs. But there are two, still two Premier League clubs who have nothing at all in this area. Wow. And so, you know, you, you think this is 2021, that's mad. But, you know, and, and one club's got 12 full-time people doing it. So it's, you know, you've got such massive ends of scale, even within the Premier League, that, that there's a massive amount of growth coming into this area. Okay. So, I mean, that, that leads us into, you know, what, what you're up to now, but we will just go back <laughs> a little bit more. So when you, when you moved to Southampton, were they Premier League then? or? Yeah, it was Koeman's first year. Okay. Um, so they'd finished, I think, eighth the year before in the Premier League. So obviously, when Pochettino done really well and um, Koeman came in and he wanted this team manager, um, which he called it, which is more of a European thing where it's like, more of a operationally focused person. Mm-hmm. Um, so they brought me in as kind of player liaison, which is more the British focus, which more on the families and the, and the players themselves rather than the team. Um, and yeah, so we, we, I was there for three and a half years as player liaison, kind of I was the only one by myself doing it. And, you know, we had some great times. We had two European campaigns. We had cup final. We had, you know, wins in every stadium in, in the country and, uh, you know, finished three points of Champions League at one time. So, you yeah. know, Working yeah. with some phenomenal players who've obviously gone on to bigger and better things, which is great to see. So, you know, that was a really, really cool experience. So I suppose it would be good to, I mean, day to day, I know it must be so different for you. Um, but, you know, for example, would you get involved in transfer negotiations? You know, are you there on match day? Are you in the dressing room? Like, what, what does a normal week look like for you? You're right. It changes so much. I mean, with transfers, we um, we might try and help like recruit the player, I guess. If they're deciding between a couple of different clubs, we might try and sell them and their family on this is where you could live, this is where the kids will go to school, you know, this is what London's like. Because obviously London's the biggest city and 99% of these guys want to live in London. So, you know, it's an easier sell, but trying to help them picture themselves at West Ham or, you know, I'm using West Ham obviously is my most recent example, but try to picture themselves in London or in West Ham. And so we, we'd work with the recruitment team on that. In terms of day-to-day, you know, and then also during a transfer, we'd be the first one to meet them at the airport, um, take them to the medical, take them to the hotel, you know, help them get signings, get them to all the do pictures and videos and interviews and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we're coordinating content and medical and all those kind of guys, um, you know, down to training them around the training ground, the stadium, introducing them to the players, the manager, the captain, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then sort of day-to-day, you know, just in the training ground around, you know, I, I, I used to run all the trips with West Ham, so like operationally and making sure you know that the, the plane was on time, the the hotels were right, the meeting room was set up, all this. You know, we we basically had policies of how we wanted things done, so just make sure everything was right. Problem solving, you know, we had we played Man United one time, and the power went out in the hotel. We couldn't eat, and it was like, Hugo, what are you going to do? And I'm like, you know, so we ended up getting gas gas burners and they cook the food on the gas burners oh wow but then the players were on the 14th floor and so the lifts are out so we're having players having to walk up you know 14 flights of stairs on a match day and I was like (laughs) if we can see the last minute goal and the players say they're tired I'm going to get in the neck but um, you know it's problem solving you know I'm doing all the tickets on a match day you know in, in COVID, I was doing the subs board even. So, um, you know, like holding it up and making the subs, which is actually more difficult than it looks. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, just, just really a bit of everything, just supporting everyone as needed and, you know, but also working with the manager closely on team morale, team building. Um, yeah. You know, David Moyes was really good at that and really wanted me to be really involved in it. So, 
you know, having meetings with them, organizing the testing, organizing everything. So, you know, kind of just, I guess, the glue that holds things together is probably a good way to look at it. Yeah. So how, how much did it or would it or had it <laughs> impacted your job when a manager would move on? Because we know in football it happens a lot. Um, yeah. You know, what, what would that mean for you? Yeah, I mean, I've, I think I'm on my eighth manager, or well, I guess Dave Moyes twice, so or seventh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's it, it, everything changes because the, you know, especially at West Ham where we didn't have a director of football. You know, Southampton are more of like a club focus where it was like you know you knew you were kind of going on this path and managers would come and go, but this is where you were going. With West Ham, it was much more manager led. So you know, the difference David Moyes and Manuel Pellegrini are two very very different people and really got on both with on both with both of them very well but they're just very different in the way they operate the way they talk to people the way they want things done and so you know the first couple of weeks is trying to work out what does the manager want and I think one of the skills I picked up is being able to meet someone and understand quite quickly you know what what's their priorities how do they like to work are they someone who's jokey are they someone who's serious is it someone who they want to chat for ages is it someone who wants to be quite concise and again, you know, you start to learn quite quickly. What does the manager want? What is the, what is his priority? Um, and what can I do for him that I know that he will be like, yeah, that's great. Or this is the way we want to do it. So he doesn't have to worry about this stuff. And, you know, it's massively different manager to manager from Koeman, Puel, Pellegrino, Moyes, Pellegrini, um, my coach in America, you know, all these different, such different approaches. And, you know, none of them are right or wrong. They're just very different. And kind of sometimes when that disconnects there, it's often because, the manager's approach and the club's approach aren't really aligned, mm. but they're not bad managers or good, or well, they are sometimes good managers, but they're not normally bad managers. Yeah. So I'm assuming in your role, results, well, just in like all football clubs across all, you know, areas of the business, your role is easier when there's good results on the pitch, right? Yeah. I'm one of the roles that doesn't really directly impact performance. I, I could definitely show there's an indirect correlation, but it's hard for me to say, well, because we found that guy a house really quickly, we've got, <laughs> you know it's hard to have that that correlation but yeah obviously everyone's in a better mood when you're winning and like it, you know if the plane like we had it one of my last games the plane was cancelled or you know private plane that couldn't take off because of the fog on the way back from Leeds away Friday night game it's a long old slog back and everyone was just tired want to go home but we won the game and so no one really cared everyone was yeah. like yeah whatever fine <laughs> I know if we'd lost that game 3-0 it would have been this is a shambles disgrace yeah, yeah. there's nothing I can do it's fog you know like I can't <laughs> come over the fan and blow the, the fog away so yeah. you know yeah of course it is but I think often I'm the one who needs to be level headed so like to be honest one, I've done maybe 450 games I've worked maybe 450 games in my career you get a little bit numb to the losing like you know you just I'm not someone who's going to be like devastated if we lose or elated if we win. You just, you have to be that level-headed guy where I don't judge people on their performance. I don't judge players on their performance. I don't judge managers on their performance. I'm there to support them as people and support the team as, as the organisation. So if I was like, well, you know, you missed a penalty, so you're not getting a good seat on the plane, it's off. You know, that's completely inappropriate. So <laughs> I, I find my role is, I, I'm level in my, my sort of reactions, but obviously... The way people are to me is very different depending on whether they won or lost or played well or played badly. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so you've got to manage all that. So it's, it's an element of, you know, being really organised, it sounds, but also like a hell of a lot of psychology, right? You've got to read people, you've got to adjust your the way you act and deal with people based on their personality from players to managers to staff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've not got any psychology background, but it's more, I've just learned people skills in my, in my time and how to handle people and, and deal with them. And, you know, 
I know that someone might be a jokey guy, but straight before a game doesn't want to joke, but straight after a game happy to joke, or the other way around, and you just it's a little bit trial and error really, where you kind of you just push things and see see where they go. But you know, some players super super focused before a game will go into the little shell, put the headphones in. Some players just want to chat as a distraction, you know, talk about fantasy football or talk about politics or whatever else. And so you know, you just kind of pick up the little bits that people like and. And, and you just make sure that those things are taken care of. And, you know, what, one example I use is we, we recently signed a player um, who, when I was talking to him, he said, oh, my mother's the my world. You know, she's the most important part. I mean, is for everyone, but I think especially for him. And so we were, we were driving somewhere with, it, with him and his mother and we were showing them some houses and it was drizzling a little bit. And so we got out of the car and I just went round to, to her side with an umbrella. It wasn't even really raining that much and just made sure that she was okay. And normally it's always... You know, we look after the player. Mm. I, I clocked that that was a really important thing to him. And he was just like, oh, this is amazing. And his mother was just like, thank you, thank you. He doesn't really speak English, but it was like, you know, thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. And automatically I could see his opinion changed, his warmth changed. Like he was suddenly, this guy's great. I love this guy, you know. And it's simple thing as opening an umbrella. And it sounds like subservient or whatever, but sometimes you just got to do these things. Yeah. And it's like that changed like that, my relationship with the player that now I know I could ask him for anything and he would do it. No problem. Yeah. How do you manage the, the players you really don't like, you know, they've got a massive ego and you just can't be asked for them. To, to be fair, like every, every group of colleagues, you can have people you like and you don't like. True. So I don't see it as any different. Hmm. Um, I often find with more difficult players, you, you do strength with strength. And I think, a lot of people look at, you know, a lot of the players are used to guys going, oh, you're my favourite, you're my hero, I love you so much. I'm not like that, so I would be pretty honest with guys. And, you know, I've had some tough characters, you know, I think especially at West Ham, there have been some some well-known tough characters. But normally if you just stand up to them a little bit and just say, listen, like, I'm here as a service. If you want if you want to use my department, you're welcome to. If you don't, you know. No, yeah, crack on. I don't, I don't give a shit, kind mm. of thing. So I, I find that if you treat them like, oh, I'm, I'm so in awe of you, then they'll just walk all over you. But if you say, listen, mate, you know, because I've had players say, I'm going to get you fired if you don't do this. And I'm like, go ahead. I've got a longer contract than you. I, you're not, you know, you're not in the team. I'm here every day. You know, go ahead. You know, not gonna, the club's not going to fire me. Yeah. But you've got to have that respect built up. Yeah. And then when they see that, they go, wow, like I wouldn't do that day one. After I've worked out a player a little bit and I know my standing, I know their standing, I'll be like, well, actually... Yeah. Take that shit, have it back, kind of thing. So, and I think that's important. You've got to be, you've got to be sure of yourself, but not cocky. You've got to be humble, but not weak. And it's like, it's a really, really fine line to, 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 to tread. And I've seen so many people go the wrong way either side and get absolutely killed. So, yeah, yeah it's a tough, a tough line to walk. Mm, well, one that you've obviously mastered. So, I mean, we could talk. I could ask you questions all day as a football fan, but also, you know, the, it fascinates me that it's, you know, it's like running a business, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, the group of people, employees, and you're obviously a big part of that. I suppose the final question on working in the football clubs you have from your past experience: which manager did you kind of click with the best, and what did you learn? from them from like a I suppose a, a leader's perspective I mean I think I've got a couple of different answers for that but I think my first one was Ronald Koeman uh, in the Premier League and he was he just had that aura where if even if you didn't know football you could walk into the room and be like that guy's in charge and I think that is you know I didn't see that from a couple of other managers I worked with and I think he just had that presence where everyone hung on every word that he said and it was just, he just managed it brilliantly. Because he'd been such a star as a player, he kind of had that that kudos. 
I think in terms of like organized, Manuel Pellegrini was the most organized man I've ever met. Absolutely love working with him because it made my job very easy. David Moyes, very different, very much likes to feel the situation, you know, change the schedule a couple of times, just try and get the best out, like more motivationally. But in terms of the work I did with him, I probably got on best with him and he probably rated me the highest out of all of them. And so I was much closer with him in, mm. in, in his sort of inner circle. So, you know, I, I don't think there's one answer, but I think every manager, even the ones that I didn't maybe click with so well or whatever, I've kept in touch with all of them and I, I still pick up little bits from, from each one of them. So, yeah, I, as I said earlier, there's not really bad managers. It's just managers who work better than others, I think. Yeah, that's a, that's a good answer. <laughs> right, I'm going to throw one more question before we talk about the future. And I know you're probably expecting me to ask, ask it and anyone listening probably is too. What is the weirdest request you've got from a player? Uh, you know what, actually, I'm going to give you a boring answer because uh, <laughs> for me, like, any request that's important to a player should be important to me as well. And, you know, the example I give as, I give as a standard one is um, I had a player who forgot his wife's birthday and she was on the other side of the world. I, you know, I can't remember exactly where. And he said, oh, my wife's birthday's in three days' time. Um, I need to send her this handbag. You know, what can I do? And my philosophy has always been no but. So no dot, 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 but. So you, could, you can't say no. You've got to say no, but here's a solution that yeah. will work for you and it's legal and all that. So I said, all right, give me an hour. I'll come back with some options. So my three options were cheapest option, number one, call your wife and apologize and say there's a really nice handbag waiting for you when you come back. Yeah. Option number two is uh, we'll stick it DHL, FedEx, you know, whatever, Royal Mail, Parcel Force. We'll send it over there. It might get there. It might not. It's probably going to be about three, four hundred pounds. Option three, though, is I'll stick an intern on a Cafe Pacific flight tonight. They will arrive tomorrow. They will get a taxi to the, the wife's hotel and they'll hand her the bag his, his, himself and that'll cost you 10 grand. And I wasn't in a situation where I'm going to judge the person for doing that. So I give them three solutions. Which one do you think he picked? Uh, one. Yeah, he picked number one. <laughs> and, and that was it. And that, to be fair, I, what I expected him to pick. But the reality of that is, is that I didn't just say, can't be done. Yeah. What would happen is someone else would hear it, or someone someone with less honest intentions would be like, "Yeah, go on then. It costs ten grand. I'll do it for twenty grand. I'll get it done." Yeah. And like, All right, fine, great, thank you. But actually, you've given him the options. You've given him three options. And, you know, if you have the option to spend one day salary to prevent your partner from realizing that you've missed their birthday, we'd all do that. So for me, I'm not going to judge him for spending ten grand on that. But you gave him the options, you gave him three acceptable solutions, and he's picked the cheapest one. That's on him, and so I provided that solution. I think that's where you look at what's a silly request. Is that a silly request? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But actually, if he was focused on that in the game, and he's like, fuck, you know, I know about game tomorrow, but my wife's working, my wife's raging at me, this, you know, you know, all these problems, she's going to kill me when I get back. His, his mind is distracted, so actually mm. it took me an hour to work it out. But that yeah. saved a lot of stress, a lot of problems, and he's... He's happy that there's been a solution, which is literally the solution was do nothing. Yeah. He's really happy with that. So yeah. I mean, that's why I look at it really. No, that was good. So in terms of now, like looking to the future, so obviously, you know, you've been at Southampton, you've been at uh, West Ham for three, three or four years, and um, you've recently taken the leap to start your own thing. Kind of um, talk us through what was the motivation for that, where you see the opportunity and, you know, what's what's the plan? I think player care has really changed a lot in the last sort of, well, I suppose in the last 10 years, but, you know, especially in the top 20 years since there was the first player liaison popping up. But I think there's a real opportunity for clubs to do things a lot better, um, really have clubs. And a lot of my job is just kind of convince clubs of the value of it. And so I've got a consultancy company which will go into clubs 
uh, mostly football in the UK, but you know, going to expand to other sports and then worldwide. But um, to show them the value of player care and then set up a, a department internally that they can run. So we'll hire the staff for them. We'll set the policies up, the procedures up, and support those people to do it. I'm not a concierge company. I'm not trying to be an outsourced department. It's to go in there and, and show them how it's done. And really, you know, there's, as I said earlier, there's, there's a couple of clubs who don't have anything right now. And that's kind of, you know, where I'm focused right now. But even the guys, you know, there's one person doing all of this for, for the players. Well, what if that person's sick? What if they're injured? What if they're, they leave? It leaves the club really, really short staff. So trying to show them, look, you need to have a department of, of complementary skills and all that kind of stuff to, to do this properly. But also, like, to actually do it properly rather than just, like, I know a guy who can fix the tyre well, how much is he charging? Who's, how is he getting paid? How is all this stuff set up? And it makes his lives a lot easier. So trying to basically remove distractions and, and letting clubs bring that in-house. Okay, so you you go into a club in a consultancy level, teach them how it's done, share all your knowledge, give them you know best practices, introduce yeah. them to people, and then leave. Yeah. So how long would that process be typically? Well, how are you positioning it to, to well, clubs? Th- this is what I'm trying to work out now because obviously it's it's been it's, it's it's not been that long since I started, but um, I, I think probably initial four to six weeks in terms of you know actual win impact, likely either having to retrain staff that are there or hire new staff, and then you know it kind of it kind of scales down as the longer we get on, the, you know the more set up the guys get. But you know at West Ham it took me a year, but that was a pretty bad situation that I inherited. Um, you know, you can you can do some really good work in, in a month to, to six weeks, but you know it won't. Be, it'll be a couple of months before the staff are in and, and settled and, and know what they're doing. But you know, the good thing is you can always do more. So that will you know, there's never a time when you stop learning. So you know, we then work on the clubs on a sort of retainer basis to to keep monitoring things, keep them abreast with the new innovations, and, and keep supporting the people. Absolutely. So are you focusing on just football now as it's sport in general? Because it, it seems to me that this actually is a tool that all businesses need, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, the, the, my initial thought was I'll do every sport and everywhere in the world. And actually, between Brexit, COVID, um, all the different restrictions actually been difficult. But what I realised well that football's my bread and butter, so I need to get it working in football first and then look to expand it. There's no point in my first, you know, my first uh, climbing Japanese curling and I have no idea about curling and, you know, <laughs> it would be I, I would feel you know at the end of the day like it's, it's an expensive service so it needs to be good and so I need to make sure I know what I'm doing you know in, as a consultant so yeah you know hopefully work with a couple of clubs um, you know in the near future and then as the demand comes in from you know I think specifically American sports will be a, a big area of growth because um, they kind of have the finances to, to support this properly you know if you're looking at like a netball team, they're not going to have the finances to either hire a full-time person or bring me in as a consultant. But I'm also looking at ways we can do like little smaller packages to sort of help them out on a, you know, don't need a full-time person. This is kind of something that anyone can do. So, yeah, we're looking at different things, but, you know, it, it, it's it's early days. So just, just trying to, you know, work it out and ride through the pandemic and, you know do the same as everyone else is doing right now yeah so it's when when, uh, when hugo mentions uh, the short period of time it's literally been three weeks so this is very early days and appreciate yeah. that so i suppose um you know if you were to give um you know one two three bits of advice to to anyone that you know wants to get into player care or work in football do do that type of thing what what would be what would be your your uh, advice 
number one bit of advice is register on my website because we're going to run an education program. So nice. There we go. We'll drop that in the link. Set that up. Well done. Uh, yeah, no, so we're running a careers program and I try and mentor and help as many people as I can. Um, I think number, number two would be try and volunteer for your local club. Um, it's so much better to have work experience at a Dulwich Hamlet or a Basing Stoke Town or something rather than just saying like, oh, I want to work at Chelsea. Well, so does everyone else. So, yeah. you know, have that experience, do the volunteer hours. It's going to be more difficult in COVID. But obviously, as that starts to go away, you'll have a lot of clubs who need a lot of help, especially for free. Um, and the third one is to try and network as much as possible and try and be useful to the people you're networking. A lot of people, you know, I, I get you know hundreds of messages genuinely and uh, I try and respond as best as I can. But when people want more and more and more from me, it's it's... I only have a certain amount of time, so I would just say try and be helpful to the people that you want help from, and they'll definitely try and help you back. Um, but also be prepared for a lot of people ignoring messages, rejection. I, I went through the same thing when I was yeah. leaving uni, and I think we all have. So mm -hmm. I've tried to make an effort to reach out to any students that reach out to me, but um, sometimes you know the demands are just too much. So try and be useful if you're reaching out, and then keep in touch with the connections you do make. Yeah, sounds good. So uh, last question. Yep. Before the last question, <laughs> um, what uh, can you give us an example of one club, be it in football or sport generally globally, that is leading the way in terms of innovation in looking after their team, their staff, or you know building that element? I mean, obviously, I would like to say West Ham because I used to run it, but uh, <laughs> you know, I think you look at like Red Bull. I think is probably in that elite, elite sort of that elite level of just looking at everything really, really positively and that synergy across the different branches, whether it's Red Bull, um, winter sports, Formula One, the football, you know, whatever. So I think that's a, an organisation that they kind of have a really nice culture and, a, you know, and that nurturing, trying to get these young raw talent in and sell them on for, for, for bigger things. And actually now being able to compete at the, at the, the high level, I think is really impressive. So that's the one that jumps out to me right away. But, you know, I'm sure there are definitely others. Nice. Hugo, thank you so much. As I said, so, so interesting. I feel like I could ask you questions all day and I'm sure when you're getting these hundreds of messages, they're doing the same. Um, really fascinating and yeah, good luck with the new venture. Um, last question, I'll do this with each of the podcast guests. If there's anyone you wanted to see in this podcast that you'd recommend, either that you know or that's a bit of a pipe dream, who would you recommend for uh, FYI? I actually had a, I had a real thought about this and I, you know, I think it's easy to say some from football or something. I actually think that um, my old geography teacher, Malcolm Bailey, uh, would be a really good guy. He's now a retired, he's now retired from, from teaching, but he's now a football historian and coached at a really good level at, at the school's level, won uh, the ISFA Cup, which is the Independent Schools Cup, a number of times, and he's just got so many great stories and a really, really interesting guy. So. Yeah, that would be my pick. Is Malcolm Bailey? Nice, I like that. They, they, people usually suggest someone that is so not attainable, so you never know. I might might reach yeah, out, yeah, get, get him on in the future. Time, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks again, Hugo. Cheers. No worries. You've been listening to FYI, the podcast featuring the biggest challenges in business and marketing. FYI was brought to you by Love Gun, an award-winning branding and design agency based in London. Subscribe, follow and share on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for plenty more where this came from.